one of Monica and I's favorite movies is called The Edge, starring uh, Anthony Hopkins. And I won't give away any spoilers for those here who haven't seen it, but uh, the movie is about some men that crash land out in the wilderness far from any part of civilization, and it's winter, and there's a man-eating bear pursuing them through the woods. And during the movie, they discuss, you know, that the man-eating bear is also a metaphor because people often try to destroy each other. There's a great scene with Anthony Hopkins, and he is at a hotel at the beginning of the movie, and Anthony Hopkins plays a man named Charles. He's a billionaire and a genius. And they introduce him to the hotel manager and tell him this man's a genius. Ask him any question, he can answer it. And the man takes an oar off the wall. One side of the oar has a panther painted on the front of it. And he looks at Anthony Hopkins and he says, there's a legend, a story around these parts. And this oar is part of that story. On the front of this oar with the panther, tell me what is on the backside of this oar. We're going to talk for a few moments about how to create really lasting change. We've mentioned many times, you know, if it's New Year's, if it's summer, if it's a special event, you know, the reality is people make these things that they call resolutions. And often at the beginning of January, there's the New Year's resolution. That word itself, resolution, includes the word resolve. And when you resolve to do something, it means you're committed to doing it at all costs. And so most people don't really make resolutions. They have a, a wish or a dream or a want to. Quoted many times, Tony Robbins, who says, change is automatic, progress is not. Progress is the result of conscious thought, decision, and action. So when people think about the changes they most want to make in life, they kind of fall into six categories. The first one is health. Things like losing weight, more energy, eat better, productivity, have more time, be more organized, uh, career goals to be a leader, get promoted, find a new job, relationships, start dating someone long term or get married or those married to reignite the spark in their current relationship. When it comes to finance next, save more, get out of debt, contribute more. And then there's free time, spend more time with family, read more, slow down, enjoy the day. Here's a great quote. See if you know who, who said this here. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. person who said that, uh, Michael Jordan, by most standards, the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. What he would go on to talk about is, you know, it's the fear of failure that holds people back. And because he wasn't afraid to try, that's why he had so much success. So to move beyond, again, what will people say? What will people think? What if this doesn't work? And to really say, what do you resolve to do today? Here's a simple strategy anybody can use. If you go to a goal-setting workshop, if you read a goal-setting book, these are the three simple steps, but you have to resolve to say, I'm committed to doing this, not a, not a wish. The first one is decide on the goal, but it's the second step people miss. And that's to answer the question, why is this goal important to me? Again, Jim Rohn said it, answers come second, reasons come first. If you have a big enough why, you'll figure things out. That's what's important. You have to say, why is this goal important? If you want a better relationship only because it sounds nice, that's not really going to give you the resolve. You have to say, I want a better relationship because I want to inspire my 
kids to their relationships and be an example to them. If you want to lose weight and you don't have a real compelling reason, come up with one. Maybe your new reason would be, I want to lose weight so I can be an example to people who don't believe that things like this are possible and I want to show them they can accomplish anything if they really just put their mind to it. So again, decide on the goal and be specific. And secondly, why is this goal important to me? And then thirdly, commit to three steps to take today. Today, as Tony Robbins said, the most important thing you can do to achieve your goals is make sure as soon as you set them, you immediately begin to create momentum. So that is one of the big keys that people don't do is they come up with a goal, but they don't begin to take steps immediately. So for instance, if your goal today is to get in better shape, then I suggest today you go buy running shoes, you know, subscribe to a magazine and get a gym membership, make something happen today. If your goal is to have a, a better relationship Pick up a book today on on relationships, sign up for a marriage retreat, and then go home and ask your spouse, what is it you truly need from me more than anything? Most important goal, hopefully, that we all resolve, John 12, 21, a great statement. There's some men, they go to talk to the disciples. They want to be introduced to Jesus, and in John 12, 21, they, they say that immortal line, Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. That is our ultimate goal, day-to-day, moment-to-moment. Whatever other things we want to create change in, that that would be the centerpiece of that. I want to read something by Steve Shepard. He wrote just some points here, and it's called How to Be Miserable. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Be suspicious, be jealous, be envious. Be sensitive to slights, never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself, insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service you have rendered and do as little as possible for others. What are some things we truly resolve to live at a different standard, to, to live as an example and not a warning? You know, Jim Mooney said it well, the number one reason we fail in life is we don't prepare ourselves for the problems we will face in life. So we're going to look at something David said about how to be prepared in season and out of season and to create lasting change in a spiritual sense and, and wherever else you have goals you want to make those changes in. It's so important. It's Psalm 1, verse 1, and it starts where David says, Blessed, or happy is another word, is the man who, and we'll talk about the answer. Think about it, though. What is it people really want, whether it's a goal for health or finance? What do people say? I want to be happy. And David said, here's the key, Psalm 1, verse 1. Happy is the man who follows simply two things that he shares to do. Ultimately, David's going to point back to that same thing. Those men said, sir, we would see Jesus. Here's an interesting test, though. Jeff Streit shares this about a psychology test done at a class where they were teaching about Jesus. And the first part of the test, it simply asked questions about Jesus and imagine his personality. You know, for instance, would Jesus follow the crowd or would he not? Was Jesus an introvert or an extrovert? Was Jesus a rule breaker? 
Then the students, after they did the first part, got a second part of the test, exact same questions, but now it asked for them to answer for themselves. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Are you a rule breaker? Do you follow the rules? What was fascinating about the test is each student answered the same, whether they answered how they thought Jesus would respond or for themselves. So if they were an extrovert, they said Jesus was an extrovert. If they were an introvert, they said Jesus was an introvert and so on. And Jeff Streit writes, those students hadn't fixed their eyes on the Jesus who was. They only saw the Jesus who was like them and who agreed with them. Jesus wasn't the measure of who they should be. Instead, they were the measure of who Jesus should be. So when we stop and say, I want to see Jesus, we need to see him as he is. So we align our life with him and we make the changes that need to be made so that we then find ourselves looking more and more like Christ. So David's word, Psalm 1, 1, happy or blessed is the man who does what? He says the first thing, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Said it many times. Most people's lives are a direct reflection of the expectation of their peer group. It's the peer groups we have that have great influence on who we are, who we become. So we have to be careful who is influencing our life and what we're allowing into our thoughts. You know, if you get all your news and information from just the television, the internet, you can go to one channel and they'll say today, this is the truth. Turn the channel. They'll say the exact opposite thing is the truth. There's all sorts of opinions out there. There's one truth, and that is Christ. And if we don't fill our minds with his thinking and his thoughts, if we choose to walk with people of bad character or take advice, the most costly advice, bad advice from people of bad character. David says, you want to know what you need to do to change your life. Be careful who you allow to influence your life. As E. Nielsen said, your legacy is being written right now. How you'll be remembered is being determined by how you live today, tomorrow, the next day. Things like what you cared about, who you cared about. How you worshiped Jesus, how you served Jesus, how you loved your spouse, your children, for those with grandchildren, how you loved them. What you passed on to those around you. Be careful who you walk with. You know, years ago, Stephen Covey made this uh, just Fascinating metaphor, very popular. I'm sure most people have seen it. Speakers use it all the time. And it's where you take an empty jar and the speaker says, I'm going to put these large rocks in the jar. And he says, is there room left? And people say yes. So then he puts some smaller rocks in and he says, you think there's room left? And people say yes. And so he fills up the rest of the space with sand. And then people are asked again, is there room left? And they'll tend to say no. And then the speaker pours water into the jar. What's interesting is Stephen Covey said that people didn't get what the metaphor was. He asked people, what is the point of this simple demonstration? And most people said things like, well, it means that there's always room for more. So if you're a busy person, you can fit more into your schedule. And he would share that's not the point of this demonstration. The point of the demonstration is to teach if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in the jar. And his point 
is simply what are the big rocks in your life? Those big things that need addressed that we don't address because we put the small things in, the sand and the pebbles. Those are things like distractions and busy work and never addressing the real thing at the heart of what needs addressed. So I'd ask you and and myself to think about as well, what are the big rocks? Think of at least one that needs addressed in your life. Maybe it's a terrible marriage and you've just let it slide and you put a lot of little rocks around to distract from that. Maybe it's finances that you need to get in order. And again, you simply distract with, you know, filling up your time on social media, things like that. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives the the metaphor I'm sure most know about the wedding party. In that first century, the, the bride would wait on one end of town at night and she would have a candle lit. And she would know the bridegroom is coming soon, just not exactly what hour. So she would wait in anticipation and it was this exciting moment. And Jesus used that metaphor for how we should be prepared again at all times with our lamp burning bright. In Luke 12, 35, he says, be ready for action and have your lamps burning. Be like a servant waiting to open the door at the master's knock when he returns from a wedding. And notice what he says here, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Not somebody that went to sleep right before the wedding was to begin, but those who were anticipating, waiting candle lit, hand on the door, listening for the announcement, the beginning of the ceremony. He says, you know, one day he comes back, will he find us ready and waiting and awake and anticipating and living for him? And that should be a daily reality for us to say, you know, sir, I would see Jesus. So every moment I want to be living for him so that if he came back today, he'd find me ready. So with that thought, I want to share a a list here. It's from the Open Doors World Watch. It's the list of Christian persecution and some things to be awake about. And I invite you to take one or two of these and add this to your prayer list. But also as we talk about this, we're going to see painful things happening around the world to pray about, but also to look at ourselves and say, you know what, I can be so grateful for the things I have here in this country. So take one or two of these, add them to your prayer list. And again, also keep in mind as we look at this, what privileges we do have. What's taking place around the world, this list is about Christians that are persecuted for their faith, which means they are martyred, killed, or tortured or thrown in prison. And this is the top 12 places around the world that happens. Number one place of persecution, the top place is North Korea. That's because in North Korea, people are told to idolize and worship the Kim family. Of course, believers worship Christ alone, so they are seen as hostile. Second, Afghanistan. It's an Islamic state hostile to any other religion. Third on the list, Somalia. 99% are Muslims. Islam is a part of the country's constitution. Persecution there for Christians is very violent. Number four on the list, Libya. Country with constant turmoil and chaos. Various Islamic militant groups control parts of the country. 
and Christians face violence for following Christ. Number five, Pakistan, another Islamic state where following Christ can mean the death penalty. Number six, Sudan, Islamic state. There it's common that churches are simply destroyed. Number seven, Eritrea in North Africa. Their churches are raided. Believers are thrown in prison. Number eight, Yemen. There's an ongoing civil war. Christians are a small part of that population, especially targets for violence. Number nine, Iran. In Iran, it's illegal to share your faith. Churches mainly underground. Believers at all times essentially subject to arrest. Number 10 is India. A nation where Hinduism dominates the country. And if you're a Christian, then you're viewed as a non-Indian and you're expected to simply leave. If you don't, you're subject to discrimination and violence. Number 11, Syria. Another ongoing civil war taking place. A Christians, especially subject to violence. Last one, number 12, Nigeria. I'll just read the quote from Open Door. Nigeria's rating for violence has stayed as high as possible. Now we see again the importance of living out what those men said, sir, we would see Jesus. So David says, blessed or happy is the man who, one, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and two, as we close, he delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Notice he meditates on it. He doesn't just read it or listen to it. Both of those are important, but meditating on it means studying it till it becomes second nature. Your thinking aligns with that, and when something comes up in your life, immediately that scripture is going to come to your mind. That's the answer because you meditated on it. So, for instance, from today on, hopefully, if somebody says, what do you need to do to be happy in life? You can say two things. Be careful who you allow to influence your life. And number two, make sure you meditate on Scripture. Charles Spurgeon, I love this prayer. Charles Spurgeon lived in the 1800s. He was quoting a Puritan from the century before him. And this man understood and loved the law of the Lord and loved Jesus. And simple meal that they had. For his family, a small fish and some potatoes to eat in a difficult time. And the man's prayer was this, Lord, we bless thee that thou hast ransacked sea and land to find food for us this day. What a great way to look at daily life to say, you know what? God ransacked sea and land to, to bless me as I simply rest in him and, and commit my life to see Jesus. So back to the movie, The Edge, they're in the hotel and the man holds up the oar with the panther on the front. He says to Anthony Hopkins, what's on the other side of this oar? I love this. Monica and I have quoted it now for years. I actually made one of these oars, have it hanging in the house here. On one side is the panther. On the other side, Charles, the character says, there's a rabbit smoking a peace pipe. And the man says, you're right. Turns it over, and sure enough, there's a rabbit smoking a peace pipe. And the man says, next question, why is the rabbit smoking a peace pipe? And Charles says, because he's unafraid. And the man says, and why is the rabbit unafraid? 
And he answers, because he's smarter than the panther. When we commit our lives to resolve to make changes, to follow Christ, to see him in all things, be careful who we walk with, meditate on his word day and night, we can say, I have no fear. Why? Because in Christ, because of his grace, because of his life, because of his love, we are unafraid because in him we are smarter than the panther.